0: The dynamic of medieval feudalism actually worked. What enabled it to work was the fact that the spheres and jurisdictions of the society were personal in nature, not merely institutional. Thus, peasants related to their local landlords and local lords related to dukes and princes, They related to kings, and kings then related to emperors or popes. Fidelity, chivalry, and fealty were calculated on the basis of relationships to people, not to governments, states, lands, or countries. At least that was the theory. But like nearly all good theories, it was discredited if not disproven in its practice. Follow the confusing lineage of the royal families or the sagas of their anguished wars of succession, and it is easy to see why the feudal system failed to live up to its vaunted ideals of balance, accountability, and harmony. Practical questions abounded. Can intermarriage merge provinces, and kingdoms? Should lands be subdivided among multiple heirs? Do illegitimate children have full or even partial inheritance rights? What happens when an overlord leaves no heirs? Uh, What if there is a dispute over the line of descent? Do two nobles with equally valid claims simply resort to war to determine supremacy? Can a Lord forswear allegiance to one crown for another? Does his land then transfer to the new liege? Uh, What about annexations of pagan realms? Are they to be accounted any differently? Or what about newly discovered territories? How are they to be assimilated? Can traders be disinherited and dispossessed from their benefice? Are fiefdoms, commodities to be traded or stewardships to be safeguarded? What is the status of the newly landed? If a family line ceases to exist, does the land escheat or revert to the overlord? Are nepotism, simony, and patronage legitimate means of transfer? In what ways do allodial farmers, merchants, and clergy, and knights relate to their sovereigns? No one ever adequately answered any of these questions, though many reformers, tyrants, and demagogues tried. As the centuries passed, the tangled web of royal intermarriage, the constant jostling of territories and titles, and the scandalous ethical degeneration of the church only made matters worse. By the end of the 11th century, the feudal system was hopelessly snarled in conflict and controversy, but it was still in place. It was still functioning. It still provided a semblance of Christian accord. Despite all its arcane quandaries, a pervading commitment to interpersonal honor, universal order, and abiding truth continued to fuel the fires of feudalism. Like faith, it was a perpetually defeated thing that survived all its conquerors. That historical snarl is the backdrop to the convulsive events of 1066, when one feudal claim to the throne of England was disputed by another. William of Normandy had been promised succession by his first cousin, King Edward the Confessor. It was a claim disputed by Edward's brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson. Edward, the son of Ethelred the Unready, was the only English king ever to be canonized a saint by the Church of Rome. He spent much of his life in Normandy. The fierce Viking invaders had again come upon England just as Edward was entering his teens. They had removed his father from the throne, so he fled with his mother and brother to Normandy, which was then ruled by Edward's uncle. There, Edward came under the influence of the Norman monks and submitted himself to the rigors of a devout Christian life. The British church, still rooted in the ancient Celtic traditions, uh, continued to function somewhat independently of the bishops in Rome. So now, Edward was exposed to an entirely new perspective of the faith, one that affected him profoundly. He vowed to make a pilgrimage to Rome, but his half-brother died suddenly, and Edward was proclaimed king before he could fulfill his vow. Edward never proved to be a particularly dynamic or visionary leader. He left most of the actual work of government to his lords, his dukes, and his earls. Nevertheless, it was evident that he fervently desired the good of his people. He was charitable, compassionate, gracious, and free from personal vanity. His piety became legendary. At the end of his life, Edward built a monastery dedicated to St. Peter in a little village adjacent to London in order to satisfy the vow of pilgrimage that he had made, but was never able to fulfill. The church, which took more than 15 years to build, was erected in the grand style of churches attached to the royal palaces in Normandy. Today, that chapel is known as Westminster Abbey. Edward died in 1066, just one week after the church was dedicated and he was buried there the next day. Events that were later memorialized on the famed Bayeux Tapestry. Upon Edward's death, the Wittenmote, the the noble assembly, chose Harold to succeed the saintly king— He was crowned in the newly consecrated but as yet unfinished Westminster Abbey. When word reached William in Normandy, he promptly organized an invasion force across the channel. He landed his troop at Pevensey on the Sussex coast and established a beachhead for his intended conquest of the realm. Harold, meanwhile, was recovering from several consolidation battles in the north and was forced to march south very swiftly, gathering troops along the way. In a pitched battle at Hastings, the infantry under Harold's command were no match for William's cavalry and his archers. By dusk, on October the 14th, Harold had been slain, and William marched northward triumphant. The remaining Anglo-Saxons retreated in defeat, and William proceeded to London where he was crowned as king in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day, 1066. Thus began the Norman Kingdom, the theater upon which future generations would undertake several waves of both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and for resources, go to George Grant.